better get straight into it. So today, Romans 8, 35 through 39, this is actually the final verses, the final five verses of the, not the book of Romans, chapter 8 of Romans. And I say that because we've been in chapter 8 for quite a while, all the way back at the beginning of June, maybe even the end of May, if I recall correctly. And it's because, I mean, people say this casually, that Romans 8 is one of the most majestic chapters in all the New Testament. It really is true. And I hope you've seen that as we've kind of marched through it piece by piece. Um, So today we're on these final verses and uh, it goes out with a bang. I'll put it that way. So I'm going to ask if you would stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Here we go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, indeed. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing with me, y'all. You can go ahead and be seated. Okay, so the title of today's sermon, you see it up there, the finale question. Yes, that is finale. That's not a typo of final with an E on the end of it. I wanted to go with the finale question because this felt like a grand finale to me. We've been marching through these last verses of Romans 8 for a few weeks now, and we've seen these questions that keep coming up. The big first question was, if God is for us, who can be against us? And as you've heard me say multiple times now, preaching on this section, that is the question with no answer, because there is nothing or no one that we could possibly suggest that is a legit threat to the people of God. And so following out of that uh, big overarching general question are sort of more specific questions. The first one was, uh, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Again, silence, no answer. Or who is there to condemn for those who are in Christ Jesus? Silence, no answer. And then the last one, the finale that we read today, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And you know the answer, there is no answer. There is nothing or no one in all of creation that can separate God's people from his love. Or, you know, to put it in the way that Jesus did in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice, they know me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Nobody. Now, I know that this finale question is a little bit longer than the other ones that we've seen in previous weeks. It's five full verses. There's lots of list 
in this finale. There's a list of trials and tribulations that are sort of laid out in verse 35. There's a list of these parallels, death, life, height, depth, things present, things future. There's even an Old Testament quotation. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's not the happiest of Old Testament quotations, right? But it's fitting, as we'll see for this passage. So there's a lot going on here. So the way that we're going to kind of try to wrap our heads around all that's in here in this final question is that we're going to pick out two phrases that are going to kind of be programmatic for us. Two phrases that will help shed light on everything else that's going on. And I think I have them up here on the screen what these two phrases are. The first one, more than conquerors, that you see in verse 37. We're going to really hone in on that. And then the second one, nor anything else in all of creation, which shows up in the last verse of our text. These are going to be our guideposts for today. Just these two phrases that will help us see the rest of what's going on around it. So let's jump in, starting with more than conquerors. Uh, let, me, let me read the, uh, the full passage for you here. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who is him who loved us? The Sunday school answer, hint, hint. Jesus, good, there you go. And actually, Hannah, if you could go forward on the slide, I think I have, there we go, it's underlined here. Now, of course, this is following right on the heels of this list that we said earlier of affliction and trial and life. Then there's that Old Testament quotation. And at the summary of it is when the Apostle Paul says, no, even though all those things might happen to us, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Now, what he's done here, the Apostle Paul, that is, is he's actually done, uh, we, we've seen this before in Romans. He's done this trick where he's taken two Greek words and he's kind of mashed them together. So that more than conquerors, it's a multi-word phrase in English, but in Greek it's actually only one single word. And what he did is he took the word for big, super, overwhelming, that literally the word mega, and he mushed it together with the Greek word for conquering, triumph, victory. And he mashes them together and he gets this compound word that in English we present as more than conquerors. But if you really wanted to just get really wooden and rigid and technical, you'd say it's the mega conqueror. You are in Christ a mega conqueror, a super conqueror, an uber conqueror, if you will. Do people still say that? When I was younger, people said Uber about everything. I guess the ride-sharing company kind of put an end to that. So mega conqueror is what he's saying here. More than conqueror is fine too, but that kind of struck me this week. And the reason why he creates this compound word is because he's trying to, he's trying to push back on some of the claims of the Roman Empire. He's trying to use a phrase they would have been very familiar with to sort of poke at them a little bit. Poke the bear of the big, bad, scary empire. So the Roman Empire in this particular time period, the first century, was at the height of its glory. And it made some audacious claims about what it was and its role in history. For instance... Roman Empire claimed to be the bringer of the gospel to the entire world. Did you guys know that? 
We talked about it back at the beginning of our study on Romans, but that was <laughs> like two years ago now. So you might have forgotten it or not been here for that, but Christians didn't create the word gospel. It's the Romans that did. And it's a word that simply means good news. And so Roman emperors, oftentimes when they would ascend to the throne and begin their reign, they would proclaim their gospel to the entire empire that they were ushering in an era of peace and prosperity. It happened multiple times. In fact, the more recent one that was right before the time of Jesus was the emperor Augustus. And he very much pronounced, sent out missives. We still have archaeological evidence of it, of him proclaiming to all the empire his gospel of unprecedented prosperity and peace under his rule and reign. So when Christians started using the, the word gospel to describe the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're purposely doing it to push back on the Roman Empire's claim. And saying, you, you say that you're bringing the good news to all the world, but actually the real gospel, the gospel for the whole universe, is what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. I'm not sure there were many emperors that were too happy about that. Well, they should have been happy about Jesus, but you get what I'm saying, happy about them taking gospel and saying, this is the real gospel. This even shows up with this phrase that's often repeated in Romans and was in our text today, the love of God. It's been said that in the Roman Empire in this day and age, there was this belief that Rome embodied love at an earthly level. It was the perfect embodiment for love for its citizens. It cared for its citizens like a mother caring for its children. And in turn, its citizens offered it unyielding obedience and loyalty. And to that, the Christians say, actually, we're going to tell you what the true embodiment of love is. It's not an earthly empire. It's God the Father, not sparing his own son, but graciously giving him up for us all. So that we might, along with him, have all things. That's true love. Which brings us to this phrase, mega conquer, more than conquerors. What's going on here? Well, you probably are sensing this out a little bit. In Rome, especially since Rome had conquered extremely vast swaths of territory in Europe and Asia and Africa, to conquer had a very simple meaning. It meant domination of your enemies, taking prisoners, being the person that was in charge and the top of the food pyramid, that was what it meant to conquer. And to that, the Apostle Paul writing this letter says, that's actually not what a real conqueror looks like. The real conquerors, those that are more than conquerors, sometimes they're imprisoned. Sometimes they're in danger for their life. Sometimes they go hungry or thirsty because they're so persecuted for what they believe. Sometimes they're even executed for their faith. And yet, even in the midst of all those circumstances, we are more than conquerors because no matter what the world throws at us, we still have our life in Christ and the hope of eternal glory with him. 
come what may. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. None of that can rob us of what we have in Christ. That's what a mega conqueror is. And could you imagine the, the Roman general in the first century that maybe had many experiences of riding his chariot into Rome to applauds and cheers, and he's got this whole train of captives behind him, and here he is reading the book of Romans, hypothetically. Let's pretend a Roman general is reading this letter, and he sees we are like sheep being led to the slaughter as a description of what it looks like to be more than a conqueror. That would have been preposterous. And it took all that Rome believed about conquering and victory and triumph and completely flipped it on its head and said, in Christ, the testimony of God says to be a conqueror looks different, but it's way more real than the Roman or the worldly definition. And, you know, we, we don't have to put ourselves in that Roman general's shoe. We can just think about it as people that live in Western culture in the year 2022. Our concept of conquering and victory and winning doesn't often look like distress, tribulation, trial, persecution. And yet here God's word saying, you want to know what being more than the conqueror looks like? It oftentimes looks like that. Now, the reason that I'm able to say with confidence that, or let me take that back, the reason the Apostle Paul is able to say these things with confidence is because he has personal experience with it. I hope you guys realize that this list of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, that is not hypothetical. That is not him just throwing out abstract possibilities. That's, that's him speaking autobiographically. And here's how I know. Let's go to the next slide. This is one of many different passages I could have chosen, but this is his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians at the very end of it, chapter 11. And Paul is, he's sort of had his hand force here. He's got some opponents in Corinth that are challenging him. So in the letter, he has to sort of lay out what he's been through and what he's done. And this is what he says. He says, I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Whoa. When Paul writes in Romans 8 about the persecution, the hardship, the affliction, he's not writing as somebody that doesn't know what it means to walk through that. He's not throwing it out hypothetically. He's saying it as somebody who's lived this life, who has gone through great earthly turmoil and expects to go through it again. 
And to me, that, that means so much because what I read here is words from someone who's saying, take it from me, somebody who's walked through this, that no matter what happens in life, what earthly circumstance comes my way, I am more than a conqueror in Jesus. I have learned that I ultimately win in him. Because all these things, as exhaustive as this is that I've listed out here, all of these things will fade away. They will cease. They are not permanent. They will be a fleeting memory in time. But what remains is my justification in Jesus Christ, is the hope of an eternal fellowship with him. What remains is his love for me that I can never be separated from. And if none of these things can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then that means I am more than a conqueror. I don't always feel like more than a conqueror. Do you? I thought it important to address that. Because the reality is for most of this week as I prepared this passage, I'm writing and thinking and taking notes on more than a conqueror, even though all the terrible stuff in the world might come at me. But what I felt in my heart, well, it was a rough week. And interestingly enough, I think the Apostle Paul, the very man that wrote this letter, he would acknowledge that he didn't always feel like more than a conqueror. We, we, we've talked about this passage before at church, but at the beginning of this letter, 2 Corinthians, there's a passage where Paul gets very personal and he shares with us. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of what I experienced in Asia. I was so burdened beyond my own strength that I despaired of life itself. I don't think that he felt like more than a conqueror in that moment. And so how do I interpret that? Either those two things just cancel each other out or this is the better option I'm gonna suggest to you. Or what it means is that my feelings are not the final arbiter of truth. The final say on what's true is what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection and God's word that testifies to that. That's what's true. And I recall years ago, I came across this, this little poem that Martin Luther wrote in one of his diaries or something like that. And it went like this, I've always remembered it. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. I don't know what you're feeling today or what you'll feel this week or in the weeks to come. But the truth doesn't ebb and flow. The truth that you are more than a conqueror will stand regardless of the feelings of your heart. And I hope you hold on to that. All right, so that's more than conquerors. Let's move on to our second phrase. 
And that'll be our conclusion for today. I know I'm getting close to time here. Nor anything else in all creation. This is kind of the closing summary statement that comes at the very end of that long list of parallels that we saw. Death, life, height, depth, uh, present, future. Um, Those parallels, what they're meant to be is basically the Apostle Paul covering all the bases, turning over every rock, making sure that he talks about everything that we possibly could imagine or fathom. So he's saying, okay, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, nothing in life, in all of its trials and sorrows and weariness, nor anything in death, that final moment where we breathe our last, and nothing in between. None of that can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes to the spiritual realm. He says, neither the angels glorifying God above or the demons and the devils trying to be our adversary and rip us down or anything in between, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. And it keeps going. Neither things present, things we're experiencing now or things that are unknown in our future, whatever might come in the future, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ nor powers, nor height, nor depth, none of it. And the point I hope you're getting is him basically trying to say, I'm imagining everything I possibly can, and I'm telling you, it can't separate you from the love of God. And so he gets to the very end, and he wraps it up by saying, nor anything else in all of creation. This is the safety valve. Because he's saying, I've just given you all the parallels, I've exhausted all the options, but just in case there is something that I've overlooked, just in case there is something that I've neglected to say, or something you out there have thought and been like, oh, wait a second, this could be something, say no. He says, nothing else in all of creation, everything God has created, none of it has the power to separate you from the love of God. So that means nothing over here, nothing over there, and stick with me now, nothing here. Tell me, am I part of God's creation? Am I? Yes. My mind, my will, my spirit, my heart, they are all parts of God's creation. So I'll say it again, nor anything else in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ. This is the reason why this passage is one of the places that people will go when they wanna talk about one of the beautiful promises that we have as believers, a promise that's often referred to as this, the perseverance of the saints. What that promise means is that if you are a redeemed child of God, you will endure to the end. Come what may, your faith will survive and he will cause you to persevere. Or in the words of Philippians 1, the work, the good work that he began in you, he will carry it out to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look at this from God's perspective, what it means is that the the redemption of Jesus when he cleanses his people with his own blood is so complete 
so thorough, so permanent, it means that he will not abandon you, even in seasons of struggle, even in seasons of of pain and doubt, even in seasons where we're thrashing about in the growing pains of life, or, you know, at the... Our, one of our favorite hymns here, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, talks about, Lord, I wonder, I'm prone to wonder. Even in those moments, God does not abandon those that he has loved and called and cleansed and saved. His love is not given and then taken away. Given, then taken away based on how strong your faith is. It's a love that will not let you go which I believe I heard Becky use that very same phrase in her testimony. It's actually a hymn, by the way, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I used to sing it back in the day. Anybody know that one? Is that familiar to any of you guys? Yeah, some of you know it. I think I requested that in the early days of Vespers, Kevin, but yeah. (laughs) Who am I talking to over there? Those early days when I was still an associate pastor, Kevin didn't take anything I said seriously. (laughs) But even though we don't sing that hymn here, there is one that we sing often that kind of makes the same point. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. Y'all have heard that one, right? Let me remind you of the first line. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold on life's fearful path because my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. Y'all, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've sat with people at a coffee shop in the church office, even after church here sometimes. Some of y'all. The people have come to me and said, Josh, I am going through a season where my love for God and my love for others is so cold. Am I really a Christian? Or they've come to me and say, Josh, I'm going through a season where my interest and my is all over the place. I feel so tempted and I have been weak and fighting temptation. Am I truly a Christian? And believe me, I've felt that myself many times. But it is a privilege as a pastor in those conversations to be able to tell people, to tell y'all, that guess what? Your perseverance is not anchored in the strength of your faith. Your perseverance is anchored in the promise of God who has said nothing in all of creation can separate you from my love. one of my most favorite conversations to have because the response is so sweet. And I know some of you might be scared and be like, Josh, sometimes there there are seasons people are struggling, they need to hear the gospel. Amen. It's true. But I hope you realize that those moments where it's obvious to me that somebody is using the perseverance of the saints as just an excuse to live a sinful, filthy life, I don't think about drawing them back to God's love. I think about introducing them to God's love for the first time and saying, you need to hear the gospel. You think you know it and have heard it, but you don't. Nothing in all of creation 
is able to separate you from the love of Christ, that means even yourself. I didn't always believe this. In fact, as my early days of the Christian, I would have greatly rejected uh, if I had been hearing myself preach. <laughs> I would have been like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I, uh, I, I think my way of thinking about it to kind of come back to, we started at the beginning, I mentioned to you John 10, where Jesus says, you know, my sheep know my voice, they know me, nothing can snatch them from my hand. I would have said like, yeah, no one can snatch them from Jesus' hand, but I can jump out of Jesus' hand if I want to. That was kind of my way of looking at it. And I know that might be many of y'all's way of looking at it. I mean, there's lots of Christians that think about it that way. But what I'll share from my personal experience is this, that my commitment to that idea was not from deep reflection on scripture. And it wasn't from deep reflection on theology. My commitment to that idea came because I was convinced that the only real motivation in the Christian life was fear. And that the only way that people were going to go through the hardship of following Jesus wherever he might lead would be if they were afraid of losing his love, afraid of having it taken away from them. How else would somebody resist temptation and go on the mission field or give tithes and offerings to the Lord? My answer would have been, well, it's because they're afraid that God won't love them if they don't do it. Well, obviously I don't think that way anymore. <laughs> and the reason why is because of passages like the one that we looked at today. And in particular, the story of the man that wrote this passage. It's part of why I took so much time telling you guys that Paul had personally been through these things himself. Because what it means is that what we have here is a man that followed Jesus through unthinkable hardship and affliction. He endured prison, he endured beatings, he endured mockery, maybe even at the end of his life endured being murdered for his faith. And what motivated him, contrary to what I used to believe, was not fear of losing his salvation. What motivated him was certainty, a security that no matter what, nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. That's what compelled him to go through all that. So contrary to how I used to believe, this didn't encourage him to be a slacker or someone who dealt with God's grace cheaply. No, the promise that nothing could separate him from God's love compelled him to be a follower of Jesus that followed Christ wherever he led, which was sometimes to some very scary places. I'm out of time, so I know the sermon that didn't really land the plane so much as the plane just sort of fell out of the sky abruptly, but I think I need to leave it at that remind you that the love of Jesus is a love that will not let you go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and we pray that it would embed itself into our hearts in the way that you desire. That it would
would work, not just in this moment that we've been talking about it, but all throughout the days to come. And that you would teach us at a deep level what it means to be loved so deeply and thoroughly by God that nothing can separate us from it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.